Well, I won't ask you to answer this out loud, but have you ever met someone for the first time and realized later that you misjudged them based solely on what you saw? You ever met someone and by the way they looked, you summed them up in a few seconds and thought you knew who they were and what they were about, and you found out later that there was much more inside than what you thought. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen any of those videos online where a very disheveled-looking man in dirty, raggedy clothes is shuffling about on the sidewalk of a busy city and going up and trying to start conversations with people, and their reactions are visible most of them recoil when he, when he approaches them. Some people in some of the videos are snickering and laughing at him. And then the video ends with him walking a few steps over to the curb and stepping into a $200,000 Ferrari and driving off. And then seeing the reaction on the faces of the people who judged him just based on what he looked like. And they thought they knew everything they needed to know about him. They didn't realize it was a multimillionaire who was just dressed like that to try and help people learn a valuable lesson. Last week, we were in 1 Samuel chapters 9 through 15. We saw how the people demanded to have a king so that they could be like all the other nations. And God gave them a king named Saul who was tall and handsome and popular and really looked the part of a king. But they discovered that while Saul looked good on the outside, he had no character on the inside. He disobeyed the Lord's commands again and again, and then he lied about it and he blamed other people, and he actually had no leadership at all. Saul did all that because we're told he did not have a heart after God's heart. So God said, I've rejected Saul as king. I'm going to take his kingdom from him, and I'm going to raise up another king who will have a heart after my own heart. And that's a key phrase. And now today we come to 1 Samuel chapter 16. This is a pivotal chapter in the history of God's people. And in this chapter, we see the unfolding of God's promise to remove Saul and replace him with someone who has a heart after himself. We see the unfolding of that beginning. So look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Now remember uh, what we just saw. Samuel had to deliver the message to Saul to let him know that God was going to tear his kingdom away. And this brought no pleasure to Samuel. It said that he grieved all night long. So 16.1, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, for I have provided from his sons a king for myself. Now we could talk for weeks about this verse alone. And I won't, because as you know, we're trying to get through the whole Bible. And so I'm having to um, exercise incredible restraint 
to not go super deep every week on any one verse. Otherwise, I'll be 120 and we'll uh, maybe just be making it through uh, Ezekiel or something. But this is, uh, this is a powerful verse that tells us an awful lot more than perhaps we think we can see just on the surface. And one of the things that I see here is, is, is the character of Samuel. Yeah, he made mistakes. Of course he did. He wasn't perfect. But we've really come to love this man. We followed him now since he was born. He was a gift from God. And we watched him grow up in the temple, uh, in the tabernacle, and learn how to become a priest from the time he was a little boy. And we see here in this verse a glimpse of the heart that Samuel has as a leader, the heart that he has for the people that God has asked him to shepherd. Because even though Samuel warned the people about the danger and the sin of asking for a king, he was still brokenhearted at Saul's downfall. This is the mark of a true godly leader, that he cares for the people he's shepherding so much that when they fall, he is crushed. He didn't want Saul to turn out this way at all. But God now said something important to Samuel, kind of like we saw in the opening verses of Joshua, when God came to Joshua and said, hey, get up, it's time, I got a mission for you, let's get going. He said to Samuel, it's time to get up and get moving again, I've, I've got something for you to do. And God said, fill your horn with oil and go. I, I love that phrase. It's a, it's a sign that something really important is about to happen. Fill your horn with oil. I wonder if after Saul had anointed, after Samuel had anointed Saul as king a while back, and how badly that went, I wonder if Samuel had taken his horn and put it in the bottom drawer and thought, boy, I'm not going to be needing that again. I don't want to do that again. That was a big mistake. But God said, hey, it's time to get up. It's time to get moving. I've got an assignment for you. And where exactly does God tell Samuel to go? Did you notice it in the text there? He said to Bethlehem. Now, the name of that little town should ring some bells for us. It should be very familiar to us. And you might be surprised to see the name Bethlehem way back there in the Old Testament because we think about it at Christmas time in the New Testament. But as we've journeyed through the Bible so far from Genesis now up to 1 Samuel, uh, the name Bethlehem has come up several times. And the most memorable one of those, I guess, would be when we were going through the book of Ruth. And it was there that we saw those two widow ladies, Naomi and Ruth, returning from that disastrous journey they had been on where Ruth, uh, Naomi lost her husband and both her sons, and Ruth lost her husband. And now these two widows are coming up the road, and we get this heartwarming picture of them, as it says, and they came to Bethlehem. And they returned there in the hopes of finding some kind of new beginning for their lives. They were destitute, and they were desperate. And it was there in Bethlehem that Ruth met Boaz, and they got married. And you remember I pointed out to you back then something very important that was going to connect later on, and here we are later on today. Because Boaz and Ruth had a son named Obed. And Obed 
had a son named Jesse, who is the very man God has just sent Samuel to here in 1 Samuel 16, 1. And Jesse's son is about to be anointed king of Israel. And so we can now connect another dot in that long line of hope and promise that runs through the Bible, that line which will eventually lead to Christ, who a thousand years after these events in 1 Samuel will be born in Bethlehem. Now, there are a couple of other phrases in verse 1 that I think are worth noting. First, when God said, I have provided a king. Yours may say, I have chosen. The word is provided. I have provided a king. In the original Hebrew, the word provided actually means to see. To see. And so God is literally saying, I see the one who I want to be my king. Now, that's important because this event here with the anointing of the next king is all about seeing. It's about the difference between how God sees things and how we see things. God has already seen the one that he wants to be king, and then Samuel is now going on this assignment, and he's going to have to do some seeing for himself. The second thing to point out in verse 1 is when God said, I have provided from Jesse's son a king for myself. For myself. Yours may say, I have provided myself a king. Now that phrase, for myself, is really important. Uh, the, the first king that Israel got was a king that they wanted for themselves. And it turned out to be a royal disaster, pun intended. So now God says, you've already tried a king for yourselves, but now I'm going to provide a king for myself. That's powerful. Saul is a king who wants to please the people, but this king is a man who wants to please God. So now with those initial instructions from God, Samuel gets ready to head out, but there's something he's worried about. Verse 2. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. By the way, that's pretty much how God operates. Step out and then I'll show you what to do next. He says, you shall anoint for me the one I name to you. Now, it's important to mention that even though God has already rejected Saul as king, Saul is still officially the king at this point, and he will actually remain king for many years to come. Because you see, God's judgment doesn't always come immediately. Hello? This is why we so often think that we've gotten away with it. Whew, I, I got away with that one. Nothing bad happened. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. God usually takes years for the consequences of things to come back to us. So Saul's going to be king for quite a while as we journey through this book. But the really troubling part to me is that Saul continued to rule over the people, 
for years, but he did so in his own power, not in God's power. And that's terrifying. Whenever that happens, it results in a terrible mess. Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Shall I just move on? So Saul, Saul is still king. But he's becoming now increasingly unpredictable and violent. And that is a dangerous combination in any human being. And Samuel is clearly worried that if Saul hears that he's gone to Bethlehem to anoint the next king, Saul's going to go nuts and he's going to kill him. But the beautiful thing is, it says to us that Samuel obeyed anyway. There's a green highlight for you. Someone else obeyed God. Verse 4, so Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So now it's the elders' turn to worry. The elders are shaking in their shoes because they look up and see this prophet of God coming into their town. And usually when a prophet showed up, he wasn't bringing good news. Not because God is not a God of good news, but because the people were, were constantly living in sin and rebellion and God had to bring judgment upon them. And that usually came through the mouth of a prophet. So they're terrified. We're in trouble. Here's Samuel. Samuel says, nope, it's all right. I'm here on a good mission. And he begins the process that God has sent him to do. Samuel gathers Jesse and his sons. And then verse 6 says, when they came, that's Jesse's sons. When Jesse's sons came, Samuel looked at Eliab and said, or it could be also thought, it's the, the picture is to say to yourself, when you say something to yourself. Samuel looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his height, because I have rejected or refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. As I said a moment ago, this passage is all about seeing. It's showing us the difference between how God sees things and how man sees things. God has already seen who will be the next king, and now Samuel is trying to see that as well. But unfortunately, he sees in the same way that Israel saw when they looked at the height and the appearance of Saul and said, ah, now there's a king. Back when Saul is introduced, it describes his height and his good looks, but it says nothing about his character. And it should be a reminder for us that we all need to be more concerned about character than anything else. Samuel looks at Jesse's oldest son, his first son, Eliab, and as soon as he sees that he's tall and handsome, he thinks, ah, there's kingly material if I've ever seen it. 
And as we're reading through this, based on what we saw last week, we want to yell out and go, Samuel, what are you doing? You're about to make the same mistake that the people made with Saul. You see, and here's a lesson for us. Even when we're walking with God, it's still possible for our physical senses to steer us wrong. That's why we've got to be constantly listening for God's direction and correction. And thankfully, that's what Samuel was doing. God said, no, Samuel, no, hold up. He's not the one. He may fit the criteria, but you've got your eyes on the superficial. You know, our world is obsessed with externals. Our world is obsessed with outward appearance. People judge others by how much money they have, by the kind of clothes they wear, by the neighborhood they live in, by the job they have, by what they look like. Some people even get married based on looks alone. And then years later, when the wrinkles and the sagging and drooping starts with all of us, and the looks fade, many people say, well, it's time to trade him in or her in and get a newer model. Because they base their marriage on externals, which never last. They're never dependable. Students, let me say to you, if you build your relationships based only on what you see, you probably won't last for the future. It's what's on the inside that really matters. And when you choose to put God first in your desires, in your dreams, in your plans, that's the kind of heart God is looking for. That's where God places the value. So Jesse's first son stands there before Samuel, and even though he looked the part, God said, no, he's not the one. I know his heart. He's not the one. Because Samuel, while you're busy looking at the outside, I'm looking at his heart. Verses 8 and 9. Then Jesse called Abinadab, the next son, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Wow. I mean, that's some courage there. Verse 11, the first part says, and Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? I mean, God had sent Samuel here for a specific assignment. He was to go to Bethlehem and anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king. How clear is that? It was clear for Samuel. And he's standing there now, having gone through all seven of Jesse's sons, but God has rejected every one of them, and Samuel, at this point, was confused. He's like, uh, is there another Jesse around here? Have I got the wrong family? What's going on? And so he asks the obvious question. You got any more sons? And maybe Jesse's thinking, well, buddy, you've, you've seen the best I've got. I mean, there is that one more son, but you wouldn't be interested in him. I didn't even bother to call him in here for this ceremony. He's just out in the fields with the dirty, smelly sheep. Trust me, you wouldn't be interested in him. 
Look at the rest of verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Then he said, they're still the youngest, but, but, behold, he's keeping the sheep. Now that was sort of a term of derision in those days. If you were a keeper of the sheep, you were sort of an outcast. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Now this is really incredible. When Jesse is calling his sons to this event, it doesn't even occur to him to send for David. I want to tell you, when a prophet shows up with a horn full of oil and says that he's come to anoint one of your sons, that's a pretty important occasion. And Jesse must have thought, wow, this is a really big deal for our family. This is quite an honor, but there's no point including David. He's not going to be in the running with his big brothers. Now, what's the mistake Jesse is making here? He was seeing the situation with his eyes and making assumptions based on external factors. And as a result, he missed seeing in David what God saw in David. Have you ever done that? Have you ever summed up, sized up somebody else in the church? Come to find out later, they know God way deeper than you do. We've got to be careful. But there's David, overlooked, forgotten, not even thought about, left out there in the fields while this once-in-a-lifetime ceremony is taking place with all of his brothers. Listen, I want to just tell you, there may be times in your life when no one else sees the spiritual potential that God sees in you. You may feel left out. You may feel overlooked. You may feel like your timing has passed. So what should you do in moments like that? I would submit to you, just keep being faithful out in the field until you're called. You know, David wasn't fighting and clamoring and elbowing his way into this ceremony. What was he doing? He was being faithful right where he was. And this principle runs throughout the Bible. Abraham had to wait 25 years before he saw the son that God promised to him. Joseph had to wait 13 years in the dungeon before God was ready to use him. Moses had to learn to be faithful in the backside of the wilderness for 40 years before God was ready to send him to set his people free. And it's in those times, listen, it's in those times that God can shape us and build us and teach us things that we cannot learn any other place except in a season of waiting waiting. I don't like waiting rooms. How about you? I always get antsy. I don't like sitting there and waiting and being at the mercy of the doctor or dentist or whatever. And if they're running 40 minutes late, tough luck on you, pal. Just wait. I don't like doing that. And I don't like being in God's waiting room either. I'm just telling you, I don't. It's not the most pleasant experience. I want to get on with it. I want to reach the goal. And we've been there. Sandy and I could tell you numerous seasons in our life where we had to wait. And there were times when it was excruciating. 
God, have we missed your will? Have we done something wrong? God says, no, no, no. I just need a couple more years to shape you, to build you into what I want you to be. And God puts us in those moments and he's watching to see if we'll be faithful right where he has us before he moves us on to something else. It's the principle of stewardship. It's the parable of the talents. People think the talents are all about money. Wrong! It's about stewarding your life and being faithful where you are with what God has entrusted to you today. And when you prove faithful in the small things, he will then come and take you on to something more. David was learning to be faithful in the field so that God could trust him in the future. The old saying is true. If you can't be faithful where you are, you won't be faithful where you ain't. Remember that. Verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now we don't know how long that took, but it could have taken a while. Brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for he is the one. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And so we finally get to meet David. We hear his name now for the first time in Scripture. And I think it's appropriate, although it may have jolted some of you, I think it's appropriate that it includes the fact that David was a handsome young man. Because after we heard last week, about the dangers of choosing someone just because they're good-looking. And after hearing again today that Samuel almost made the same mistake with the oldest brother, you might conclude that God can't use anybody who is good-looking. But that's missing the point. God's not weeding those people out. It mentions this about David, I think, to say that the person God uses doesn't have to be tall and handsome and beautiful, but if they are, that doesn't exclude them. And by, by mentioning this about David here, I think it's actually re-emphasizing the fact that God chooses people based on their heart, because it's saying whether they're considered good-looking or not in the eyes of people, it doesn't matter to me. That's not what I use to choose people for my service. So David came in from the field, and I must imagine that possibly he was tracking mud in on the carpet, that he didn't smell too good, that maybe he had briars in his clothes and his hair. And he's a young boy at this point. We don't know exactly, but people think between maybe 12 and 15 years old. He comes in. And it's interesting, Samuel didn't recognize the king in David because God had to say to Samuel, this is the one. Get up, anoint him. And there are two specific things about David's anointing that I, I don't think we should miss. First, it says David was anointed in the midst of his brothers. Mm. How thick do you think the tension was in that room? What do you suppose his big brothers were thinking at that point? 
Uh, they were probably saying, oh, this is so great. We should all go in together and buy a really nice gift to give to David to commemorate this occasion. No, that's not what they were saying. They were not happy about this at all, and we'll get a peek into that more next week. But the point is, you may be surrounded by oppositions, opposition and, and critics and enemies and naysayers, but if you have a heart for God, he can anoint you and use you right in the midst of your enemies. The second detail we're given about David's anointing, and boy, this is important, is that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him from that day forward. And in the very next verse, it says that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. And in those two contrasting statements, we get a picture of the opposite directions that the lives of these two men are going to take from here on out. Saul's life spins out of control while David continues to be led by the Lord. You know, David learned a secret. He knew a secret that I think we should all learn. Look back at verse 7, would you, of 1 Samuel 16? This is the key verse here. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his height, because I have rejected him. And here's the key. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And, and maybe this is a good point in the message for us to be asking the question, okay, but what's so special, what's so important about the heart? Well, God mentioned in the verses we read last week, that he was going to raise up a man after his own heart. He mentions heart again here in today's verses. And even in the New Testament, it repeats the fact that David was a man, out of all the things they could have said about him, David was a man after God's own heart. Why this focus on the heart? Well, according to all that God has been saying up to this point, there was one key difference between Saul and David. The difference had nothing to do with their skills for being a king. It had nothing to do with who was the greatest warrior. It had nothing to do with who was the most popular or who had the most impressive resume. The thing that separated those two men in the eyes of God was that Saul's heart was focused on himself, but David's heart was focused on God. This is the same thing that separated David from his brothers, and verse 7 makes that very clear. I'm sure his brothers had lots of qualifications. But God said, out there in the fields with the sheep is a boy who has one thing they don't have. He has a heart that is aligned with mine. You say, okay, fine, but I'm, I'm still wondering what's so important about the heart. Well, let me wind this down now by, by saying this. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's, it's obviously not referring to that physical organ in our chest that pumps blood through our body. Heart is the word the Bible uses to describe our innermost being, the very center, the very core of who we are. It's the place where all your thoughts, now listen carefully to this, it's the place where all your thoughts 
and passions and desires and affections and appetites and attitudes and actions come from, good or bad. No wonder Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. The Bible illustrates it this way. Whatever kind of plants you cultivate in your garden, those are the plants you're going to reap. Those are the plants you're going to grow. And the same is true with our heart. Luke 6.44 says it this way, For each tree is known by its fruit. Indeed, figs are not gathered from thorn bushes nor grapes from brambles. The good man brings good things from where? Out of the good treasure of his heart. And the evil man brings evil things from where? Out of the treasure of his heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 15, 18. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these things defile a man. Proverbs 27, 19. As water reflects the face, so the heart reflects the true man. And we could go on and on. So what is God looking to find in that invisible, innermost place in our hearts? Psalm 51.6 gives us a hint. It says, behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. You desire truth in my heart. And who do you think wrote that? David did. David also wrote Psalm 139, 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And, and, and in that verse, we get a picture of the character of David compared to what we saw in Saul last week. Saul wanted to hide things in his heart from God. David wanted to have a clean heart before God. Yes, both men were sinners, but it was their heart that made them respond differently when they were confronted with their sin. We saw how Saul covered up his sin, and then he blamed other people. He lied about it, but David took responsibility for his sin, and he said, O oh God, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. Saul was concerned about his reputation. David was concerned about God's reputation. Which one matters most to you? Which one matters most to me? And both these responses from Saul and David, both of those responses came from what each man was fostering and cultivating in his heart. Each of us, will ultimately live our life like Saul or like David. And which one we are depends on what we're cultivating in our heart today. You want to know how to have a heart for God? Listen, I'm telling you, it will not come from obeying a long list of religious rules. It doesn't come through effort. It comes through surrender. It comes from saying every day, Lord, here's my heart. 
all my desires, all my ambitions, all my thoughts, all my plans. I want you to search them all and align them with your truth and with your purpose and with your will so that in all I do, I will live for you alone. May God grant to each of us a heart after his own heart. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart.